Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Newell Bringhurst, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing well. Good, good. Glad to have you on. This is uh, interesting. You were you were part of uh, another book that dealt with race and priesthood. The the book, The Mormon Church in Blacks, a documentary history. This is one I've got on my shelf, and, and it's one that uh, I've read. And today we're having you on to talk about your new book, which is Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, The Changing Place of of black people within Mormonism. Uh, before we jump into the book, though, uh, I wanted to give you just a second, Newell, if you could just share maybe a brief bio about yourself so that listeners can kind of get a feel for, uh, for who you are. Uh, yes. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm a native Utah. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in, I was born in Salt Lake City, uh, war baby. I was born in 1942. And uh, I grew up, I came of age in a small uh, town south of Salt Lake City, kind of a, at Middale, Utah. And uh, that's where I, uh, I ultimately went to the University of Utah, where I did both a bachelor's and a master's degree. Uh, both of them were in history. So I had a lifelong history, of interest in history. I'd always loved history. And so I was naturally drawn to that discipline, even though I was warned beforehand that uh, the employment opportunities are somewhat constricted in the field of history. So that necessitated uh, doing not just a bachelor's, but going on and doing graduate work. And so after I finished a master's degree at the University of Utah, I did my Ph.D. at the University of California, Davis. And uh, the book, uh, the, the just published Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, was actually a derivative from a doctoral dissertation that I did at the University of California, Davis. So when you describe it as a new book, it's not completely new because actually the first uh, edition of the book was published in 1981 after I'd finished the dissertation. Uh, the so uh, the book is actually a reissue. Uh, I left the text pretty much the way it uh, originally was, except for correcting spellings and, and other uh, issues in it. But uh, what necessitated, uh, it, it might baffle your reader, your listeners, why a reissue of a book that uh, was published, originally published 37 years ago especially given uh, all of the outstanding works that have been 
written and published on uh, the issue of race and Mormonism. And uh, the reason that uh, it, it has been reissued uh, by Greg Colford Publishers in Salt Lake is they felt that uh, the book didn't get the, uh, uh, the, the notice, the attention that it deserved when it was originally published uh, in 1981. Uh, it, I, had, I had a great deal of difficulty in getting the book published, in part because of bad timing. The book came out uh, within three years after the 1978 priesthood revelation. And uh, I had, uh, the reason I had such a difficult time finding a publisher is because part of it was, uh, uh, I think, a, a kind of a, an atmosphere within the LDS community and amongst the people, even among scholars, that... Uh, the issue of blacks and the priesthood uh, was kind of an, you know, the policy was uh, was uh, you know one that the church had always been uncomfortable with, particularly uh, after World War II, and there was a sigh of relief uh, when the re the revelation came down in '78, that uh, and an attitude of wanting to move on and uh, sort of try to not really think about this controversial chapter in uh, Mormonism's past. It's kind of analogous to what happened when uh, the 1890 Manifesto came out relative to polygamy. The church at that time, you know, they, they were uncomfortable with all the controversy and all the attention that had been given uh, this uh, controversial practice. The same was true for black priests of denial. And so I had extreme difficulty even finding a publisher for the original printing of Saints, Slaves, and Blacks when it was published. And uh, I finally found a small academic press uh, in uh, Greenwood Press in Westport, Connecticut, which was willing to uh, publish the book, albeit uh, a, a limited number of copies, and it was um, outrageously priced at the time that the book, uh, as originally published in 1981, sold for uh, $29, almost $30, and for a book like that, that was considered an outrageous price when most books of that type were selling uh, for, you know, 10 to $15. That would be comparable today to a book, you know, selling for $75. The book quickly went out of print, and uh, it's kind of, kind of faded into the background. <clears throat> Greg Colford uh, was willing to publish it for that reason, that it hadn't gotten sufficient notice and attention. Gotcha. So jumping into, and you've already spoken a little bit on this, but I want to get you to kind of maybe expound on this a little bit. We we recognize in the church, like, there's some things that Joseph Smith said that were perhaps had some racism in it, but we also recognize at the same time that Joseph is giving priesthood to uh, folks like Elijah Abel uh, and a few others. And so there's kind of these mixed results within um, the presidency of Joseph Smith as the founding prophet of the Restoration. And then Brigham Young comes along, and he would have certainly been aware of how Joseph would have handled this, again, with mixed results. But then 
it seems like something happens and we get to this moment in 1852 where Brigham kind of lays down the law and says, you know, we're not going to be giving priesthood uh, to those uh, of dark skin. And I'm, I'm just curious if maybe you can help us go back into the history and help us make more sense of why Brigham, uh, Brigham Young all of a sudden has this kind of um, shift in his own perspective to the point where now he's getting more rigid on this issue. Well, uh, that, that's the, that touches on the other aspect of my book that I think makes it unique from earlier studies and even from later studies is that the whole issue of black priesthood denial is intertwined with shifting Mormon attitudes toward slavery, black slavery especially. Uh, because one of the arguments that I, I make throughout Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, as, as implied in the title, is that uh, uh, the Latter-day Saints shifting attitudes with regard to slavery was a major catalyst in uh, prompting Brigham Young to, uh, to deny blacks the priesthood. When he makes his first public statement in 1852 uh, to the uh, territorial legislature in his role as Utah governor, he uh, intertwines, he makes this long, long speech, February uh, 1852, in which he uh, justifies black priesthood denial uh, with the fact that uh, uh, that he's justifying uh, the uh, divinity or the sanctity uh, the, the, uh, uh, that, that uh, slavery is a divinely instituted practice. And, uh, you know, in, that eight, in 1852, uh, Utah legalizes black slavery uh, as, as the only Western territory to uh, legalize black slavery during the 1850s. And so it's intertwined with uh, his embrace of black slavery in 1852. And uh, the, one of the arguments I make in the book is that Mormon attitudes towards slavery go back and forth. I mean, if you read carefully the Book of Mormon, for example, uh, it contains the practice of human bondage. Uh, uh, the Nephites never enslave other people, but the dark-skinned Lamanites are the ones that are enslaving and, and em- embrace the practice of, of human bondage. And that, so, so when, the, when the, the foundational scripture, the Book of Mormon, condemns slavery, and, and uh, that, that's the initial attitude of of Joseph Smith and uh, the early saints, but that's not really expounded or emphasized when they uh, when the church is founded in 1830. In fact, uh, from during the early 1830s, the uh, uh, church spokesmen, church leaders, Joseph Smith and others, uh, really avoid discussing the issue of slavery, even though slavery is becoming increasingly controversial during the decade of the 1830s. Uh, it, it, it's not openly discussed, and it's not until the mid-1850s that, uh, that all of a sudden uh, the uh, Joseph Smith and other church leaders uh, uh, justify uh, black slavery. In fact, uh, uh, it, uh, you know, they're, they're in, in the Doctrine and Covenants, one of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants is, 
you know, they say it, 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 it's not, and I, I, it's terrible, I can't remember the exact number, but it's, it's not right, you know, to interfere with, uh, with uh, slave owners or bond servants. They don't use the word slavery directly, but it's, uh, it's been canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants uh, in, in one of the sections of that work. And so uh, that when, when, they, um, when the church affirms support for slavery, it, it's done in reaction to two developments. The fact that the church has settled uh, its Zion in, in uh, Jackson County in Missouri, which is a slave state. And the second thing that prompts the church to speak out in support of slavery is the rise of the abolitionist movement. So in many ways, the pro-slavery attitude that's manifested in, in, the, in the Book of Mormon and through the pages of the official church newspaper of, of that time uh, is, uh, is in reaction uh, by the church to uh, disassociate themselves from the abolitionist movement, which was uh, kind of following the suit of what other Americans were doing at that time. Abolitionists in the 1830s were considered as wild-eyed radicals. And so uh, the church uh, throughout the 1830s assumes this uh, anti-abolitionist pro-slavery position. But then uh, after they're driven from, after the saints are driven from Missouri in 1838-39 and move on into Illinois, uh, Nauvoo, Illinois, Illinois, a non-slave state, uh, and uh, at that point, uh, the uh, Mormon attitudes towards slavery shift yet a third time, wherein uh, I guess it'd be a fourth time, in which the church assumes a anti-slavery position. And again, Joseph Smith leads the way, but uh, it's echoed by other church leaders as well. Uh, they come out and start condemning slavery. A part of it is they're they're condemning the Missourians as being slave drivers and and all of that. But also uh, Joseph Smith, when he runs for president in 1844, uh, speaks out very strongly in in advocating uh, the doing away with black slavery through gradual emancipated uh, compensation uh, of the uh, of, of black slaves of, of, of paying the slave owners to free their slaves. He, that's a major plank in his 1844 presidential platform, and that attitude of that anti-slavery uh, attitude of the church during the period from 1839 to 1844 is, is represents a climax of, of, of LDS anti-slavery feeling. But then following Joseph's death and uh, the migration of the saints out to the Great Basin, uh, there is that uh, a, a fifth and final shift in which uh, uh, the uh, uh, Brigham Young and uh, leading the way uh, comes to the kind of kind of reverts back to the, the the sentiments and the statements that were made back in the 1830s by Joseph Smith and others saying that slavery is a divinely uh, instituted uh, practice, and uh, and he he embraces that with full force, as reflected in the act of uh, in 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 the act in relation to service, which uh, legalizes slavery in Utah. Right, right. Um, so so Brigham kind of puts this in stone, 
and there's there's really no revelation, right? The church acknowledges today, like, we don't know where this really came from, and we put it behind us, and we disavow all the theories that came with it. But I want to kind of at least have a conversation about how those theories came into place. And I think it's important to say, like, okay, there's no revelation with, with Brigham Young. And Brigham, um, after he, you know, dies and... The next two, three, four, five leaders who come in to be president of the church, how do these theories begin to develop? Like, how do we go from saying those of dark skin can't have priesthood to saying that these folks were cursed in the, you know, with the curse of Cain or were less valued in the premortal life? Where do those theories start to um, come to the surface and become part of the public conversation? Well, those theories are always there in, in various uh, uh, Mormon uh, scriptural writings. Even in, you know, in, in the Book of Mormon, uh, uh, a dark skin is emblematic of a divine curse. You know, that, that, that's good. So, there's, so these uh, uh, Mormon racist or racial theories uh, were always, uh, always present. But uh, during Joseph Smith's lifetime, uh, these theories were not used. Uh, to justify black priesthood denial. I mean, they they were there. There was always a sense that uh, uh, that that somehow uh, blacks uh, were and 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 other dark skinned people uh, were somehow less uh, less favored in God's eyes than other people based on the writings in the Book of Mormon, based on the writings in the Book of Moses, uh, the uh, Book of Abraham, you know, which constitute the Pearl of Great Price. But uh, those teachings, particularly, you know, the most famous one in the Book of Abraham is cursed as pertaining to the priesthood. You know, that eventually was utilized as a proof text to justify black priesthood denial. It was, uh, you know, quoted and used by uh, church leaders from the late 19th century all the way down into the mid 20th century. The most conspicuous ones, of course, being uh, people like Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie. They they were the probably the loudest and most emphatic in uh, looking back to various Mormon scriptural writings, particularly those in uh, the uh, uh, in the Pearl of Great Price. So those writings were always there. But, uh, you know, after, uh, uh, but they weren't used as a means of justifying uh, black priesthood denial until, uh, uh, until uh, after the 1860s. I mean, there's no direct, I mean, there's some uh, parenthetical references uh, as early as 1847, where uh, a statement, I think it's Party P. Pratt, says, uh, uh, he questions whether blacks can be uh, ordained. He comes across to, he comes across to Walker Lewis while he's visiting Lowell, Massachusetts, and he he says, "Aren't blacks cursed as pertaining to the priesthood?" So he's of course making reference. He doesn't. He's not quoting directly uh, the Book of Abraham, but he's you know he's he's referencing it without saying where that you know he uses that language. But it's not until after the death of uh, even Brigham Young 
that uh, there is a, a systematic effort to uh, build a theological or doctrinal basis for denying blacks the priesthood. And that, of course, is given legitimacy with the canonization of the uh, of the Pearl of Great Price in 1880, even though it, it first appears in print in the, 18, uh, in the 1840s, you know, in, in, through the pages of the uh, official uh, newspaper in Nauvoo. That's where it's first printed. But the uh, first uh, book or uh, uh, edition that is, is, is published as in book form isn't published until 1851. And then it doesn't become canonized until uh, 1880. And so, with the canonization of the uh, of, of 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 the Pearl of Great Price containing, you know, these rather negative writings alluding to black people, that 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 becomes one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is the concept of the pre-existence. You know, the idea that somehow there was this war in heaven again. That's contained, you know, that's explicitly referenced in uh, the uh, Pearl of Great Price, the idea that some, you know, the, the war had happened and some spirits were, were more valiant than others. Uh, that, uh, that whole idea of the pre-existent theory is start, it, it, the earliest uh, attempt to put forth that is uh, Orson Hyde in 1845, uh, following the death, uh, or, yeah, following the death of Joseph Smith, and so you've got the pre-existent theory that that is given uh, uh, additional prominence, and uh, so you you you've got this uh, kind of scriptural superstructure and or uh, these references that uh, give uh, divine, seemingly divine legitimacy, and the other thing that comes into play is. Uh, is following uh, the death of Brigham Young, uh, the uh, the I guess we would call it a Mormon myth that uh, uh, emerges that the practice was started not by Brigham Young in 1852, but by Joseph Smith back in the 1830s as a result of uh, of uh, the troubles in Missouri, the emergence of of uh, that uh, Joseph Smith was the one that really started the practice and uh, that that in that embrace of that and so that gives it additional legitimacy if you can say that it was Joseph Smith that actually started the practice that adds one more element to reinforcing uh, the uh, practice of black priesthood denial and you read carefully the two official statements it's interesting because it it, it it doesn't become a fully, uh, you know, it, it, it so it does, it, it, uh, it is present uh, by Brigham Young's death, but uh, even Brigham Young himself, it's interesting, Brigham Young himself never attributed the practice to Joseph Smith during his lifetime. He, there's a famous statement to where he said, if no, if, if no other prophet ever said it, I say it. Uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, something to that effect, that uh, blacks cannot hold the priesthood. He, 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 and so he's, he's virtually saying that I started this practice. But that's, that tends to be ignored, uh, you know, uh, starting in the 1880s after Brigham Young's death. And uh, as I say, what the beginning point of that myth is with the so-called Smoot-Coltrane 
testimonies that are given, and I talk about that at length in my book, that uh, in, in 1881, where they're trying to delineate when the practice actually started. And so it, it, it goes back and forth. Uh, you know, as I say, uh, all of those elements are in place uh, by the time of uh, Brigham Young's death. Gotcha, gotcha. We're talking with Newell Bringhurst, author of Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, The Changing Place of Black People Within Mormonism. <clears throat> um, I want to... I want to hit on this, and this is a complicated question because you're you're a historian, and you're communicating about Mormon history. But this question brings in Mormon theology as well, and and so I want to get your thoughts here. <clears throat> but I also want to recognize, like, you would see yourself as limited, kind of stepping into the sphere. But in, in here, and I'll try to frame this. Um, we've got the. Uh, Lowry letters, uh, Dr. Lowry, uh, in regards to yeah, his Dr. communication Lowry. back and forth. Yeah. What's that? I'm sorry. Uh, Dr. Lowry Nielsen, you mean? Yeah. Yes, yes. So we've got his letters back and forth with the First Presidency, and you've got George Albert Smith, his counselors and his secretary, on the record stating that these theories of, of valiancy in the premortal life and having a curse that these things are doctrine and I get that they're wrong, but they're very firm in, in kind of holding this ground. Like this is the doctrine of the Lord. And if we, if we stray from that, we're on unsafe ground. And we have this theology in Mormonism that, that the leader of our church, he's not only the president of the church, but he's a prophet and he talks to God. And it seems like with this shift, in seeing that we framed these things as hardcore doctrine at one time, and at least in the 40s, and and I think the argument is pretty safe to say for decades before and a few decades after, um, it, it brings up this conversation of just how wrong the president of the church can be, and 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 if God's in this movement of the restoration, and I want to take a faithful view here, if God's involved in the restoration, it opens up a deep conversation about how wrong God would let his prophet be on serious issues that offend and hurt and traumatize segments of society. Um, You mentioned uh, Brigham Young, President Young, um, stating that slavery is is a uh, a god condoned practice so there's another instance of being severely wrong i just want to maybe at least talk for a moment about how the world seems to get this issue right long before the church that it seems like on a lot of social issues that the church tends to lag behind kind of holding old ground and and maybe how wrong at least on this issue, church leadership was, um, and and God seems to just kind of stay back and and not make these uh, leaders aware that what they're doing is not only wrong but deeply hurtful, deeply traumatizing, uh, deeply damaging to a segment of society. Um, just your thoughts there, and again, I I recognize that this really isn't ground that you as a historian would wade into. But any thoughts you've got as you've kind of weighed these things over the course of your life? 
Well, uh, I, I, I guess uh, looking at it from a causation uh, historical view, I, you know, without uh, condemning, uh, you know, uh, the people directly involved, I, 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 I think, you know, the, the church when they, uh, let me start with, I guess, the church's official statement, which, uh, you know, which tried to explain why and how the practice started, and they, they, in, in that official, uh, you know, uh, gospel topics essay that was issued in 2013, they said, you know, they say uh, Brigham Young was a product of his time. He embraced the uh, racist theories and ideas of his time, and I would start from that premise uh, that the church is correct in stating that. That, uh, and I, 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 would, I, I wouldn't argue with the essence of that. Uh, statement, but I guess you get into kind of uh, a controversial. Uh, I guess you get into a uh, controversial aspects of it when you point out the fact that they consider themselves as uh, as divinely inspired, indeed as prophets of of, of God, and uh, that you know that of course gets to the whole issue of of, of one's faith and belief. To what extent? Are church leaders, and you always you hear this very often. When when are they speaking as men? When are they speaking as uh, uh, as as prophets or as mouthpieces of God? And uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, Mormon theologians uh, or, or students of Mormon doctrine have gone back and forth in debating that point. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I I think that. Uh, you know, uh, Brigham Young sincerely believed what he was saying about slavery being a divinely sanctioned institution because he was echoing the attitudes of many Americans at that time. And, uh, you know, he, uh, where do you draw the line between when he's speaking as a man and when he is speaking as a prophet of God? I mean, those, uh, that that it's a very it's very difficult to delineate, and that you could even make that same argument with more modern church leaders like Joseph Fielding Smith uh, and uh, Bruce R. McConkie, who in the 20th century are the most emphatic uh, uh, spokesmen for black priesthood denial. You have to recall that they're living at a time, uh, and they grew up. They came of age, particularly Joseph Fielding Smith comes of age at a time when uh, a majority of Americans uh, looked upon uh, black people, other people of color, uh, as inferior in terms of their uh, naturally, you know, their their endowments uh, and their characteristics. And uh, so when Joseph Fielding Smith is, is, is expounding on these ideas in The Way to Perfection and his numerous other writings, he is writing from the vantage point of being um, a, a product of his time, and you know he and he sincerely believes that uh, that this has been divinely uh, sanctioned uh, by God. Just like you know, fast forward to to uh, Spencer W. Kimball. Uh, uh, Spencer W. Kimball, I think, uh, when he starts you know really seriously thinking about this issue. He is he is coming to the conclusion that uh, that uh, you know he's coming to a different set of conclusions because he sees what's happening in the larger society around him, 
that, uh, you know, that the, as you say, the church is lagging behind, particularly on the topic of civil rights. I, I, I discussed that to some extent in uh, one of the latter chapters of my book where the church was in terms of the civil rights movement, and they, they really lagged behind. I think part of it was geographic isolation, uh, the fact that uh, uh, throughout most of its history, the church was, uh, was an institution that was uh, uh, pretty restricted to the Great Basin and, and, and surrounding areas. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, they, they had this view that uh, most of the members, I mean, they look out in the congregation, everybody, virtually everybody's white. And, and so they're, uh, you know, it, it's very much of a, uh, uh, an isolated, uh, overwhelmingly uh, white uh, Anglo uh, uh, institution. But by the time the Spencer W. Kimball becomes president in, uh, in, in, in the 1970s, uh, the church has 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 moved very differently. It's becoming more and more internationally oriented. More and more people of color are uh, are coming into the church, particularly in in Latin America and in Asia. And so, uh, you know, he 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 sees this uh, you know this this whole idea that uh, that uh, the blacks be denied the priesthood, and in fact that somehow people of color are 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 inferior in terms of their natural endowments is, 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 is counterintuitive to where the church is moving. And so he, 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 sees, the, uh, he sees the issue of race, racial identity. We, we can use even whiteness. You know, I see this uh, from a, a much different perspective. And, and that continues to gain momentum, uh, you know, even after the... Uh, the 1978 revelation, look where the church is today. Uh, the overwhelming majority of, of people are from outside, of members are from outside the United States, and, and a huge percentage of those are people of color, people of different languages. And so uh, uh, the church, you know, has a much different worldview. Church leaders who have a much different worldview. Uh, finally, at long last, we have two, uh, uh, two apostles of color in, uh, in, 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 in the 12, you know, the two most recent appointees, one from Brazil, um, a Brazilian uh, apostle, and uh, a Chinese-American. And uh, it, it, the changing face of the church, I think, uh, uh, and uh, where the demographics have moved, I think, have, have, have uh, caused this different worldview. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. And I, and I think you're right. Like, the church has come a long way in this recent general conference, um, beginning to have some diversity among the leadership, which, and again, I don't mean to poke, but still void in the top 15 of one with with dark skin, one of African descent, which I think will happen. I mean, I think in time it's going to it's going to obviously occur at some point. Um, but I want to make sure I I get your perspective here, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so feel free to disagree with me. But it sounds like you would agree, even if we take the most faithful perspective, we're going to have to recognize that God allows the church president and the apostles, generation after generation, 125 years to be dead wrong about a serious matter that can can easily be seen as offending, marginalizing, and causing trauma to others. Like, if 
if we're going to place faith in the restoration, and again, I want to take a faithful view, we at least have to allow our leaders to make really serious mistakes, um, group of leadership after group of leadership, where they think one thing, but they're dead wrong about that, and that thing they thought was right, which isn't, deeply hurt and traumatized and marginalized a segment of God's children, right? We we have to at least kind of give that kind of space. Yes, I I, I agree. It 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 uh, it's really a difficult chapter in in LDS church history, and uh, you know it, it's one of those things that you, uh, you as a as a, a thinking, believing Latter Day Saint are willing to engage in the dialogue to uh, you know discuss how, uh, and I guess it gets to the fundamental question: How can these men that we believe as divinely inspired by God allow this to happen for all of those years. I mean, I, I think it goes to the whole uh, basic essence of, of a concept of God. How can we uh, believe in a God who allows so much evil to go on in the world? How can we believe in a just God who allowed uh, the Holocaust to take place, to allow you know, uh, evil people to, uh, uh, you know, uh, the genocide that taking place in Africa or uh, what happened in Cambodia after after the fall of, with, under, under Pol Pot in which uh, uh, thousands of people, uh, how can we believe in a, uh, in a, a, a just God who allow, would allow those, I, and it goes to the essence of one's faith, how, how, how far does one go to believe in God? I think you could say the same thing. How far does one go to believe that our uh, our church leaders are uh, divinely inspired by God? That they are prophets? You know, it it it, it it's almost an, an an answerable question. At least that's the way that I see it. Right. Right. Totally understand. Um, and it seems like we've we've framed within LDS theology this idea that you know, the prophet can't lead the church astray. And and I think what the very least we as Latter-day Saints have to do is at least have a conversation about what that means, because it obviously doesn't mean that he can't make serious mistakes and teach false doctrine. I know that Elder McConkie, for instance, when he writes a private letter to Eugene England, uh, acknowledges that Brigham Young taught false doctrine, and that each of us have to kind of decide what we'll follow and what we won't in terms of those kinds of things. I just think that we as Latter-day Saints have got to sit down at some point as part of a lesson manual, as part of conversations in our classes, and say like, yeah, the Lord won't allow the prophet to lead the church astray, but that may not mean exactly what we used to think it meant. And begin to open ourselves up to more vulnerable conversations that include church presidents generation after generation getting things seriously wrong and believing and perpetuating false doctrines. Um, I want to, I want to move out of this space because that was kind of the center of our conversation there. And, and I, I wanted to at least kind of throw you that one hard question, but I think what's more interesting um, is what's happened from these hardline positions of the 1940s and then moving towards what happens in 78 and then there seems to be this giant gap of silence into the uh, gospel topic essay uh, just just you know a few years back. Um, I want to start with the the shift from these hardline 
positions that these false theories were doctrine, they were just absolute doctrine and shouldn't be debated, to the church beginning to soften up and make space for this change to come, could you maybe speak to some of the things that are going on behind the scenes that are opening up church leaders to saying, what if, what if we're wrong? What if we made a mistake here? Well, I mean, uh, the, uh, there, 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 there were debates and discussion over, uh, you know, the veracity of black priesthood denial, even, uh, even going back into the late 19th century. I mean, it, it, it's kind of interesting because it, it starts out as a practice. You know, I, I think the whole thing of, 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 of black priesthood denial, uh, it goes through kind of three stages, and this has kind of been articulated uh, quite nicely by uh, Max Mueller in his book, uh, Race and the Making of the American People, and I allude to it in my Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, that it starts out as a practice under Brigham Young, and, and that's pretty much the way it is uh, throughout most of the 19th century. And then in, uh, in, in the early 20th century, around 1908, about the time that uh, Jane James, who was kind of a conspicuous black female Latter-day Saint who was petitioning for her uh, uh, temple uh, endowments and temple blessings, when she dies in 1908, uh, the church moves toward uh, it uh, from, from a, uh, being a practice to a policy, they make a definitive statement in 1908 that uh, we will make no effort to try to preach among or convert uh, blacks to Mormonism, even though the church is becoming, you know, has always been very missionary minded, that would deliberately avoid that. And so it, 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 it's hardened into a policy at that point. And then it becomes a doctrine with the, uh, by 1949, with the official issue of the 1949 First Presidency Statement, in which in that statement, if you read it very carefully, it refers to black priesthood denial as a doctrine. And so it, it, as, as you rightly mentioned, it, it, it really hardens up as a doctrine in the period from 1949 and reinforced by the 1969 statement which uh, is, comes at the end of David O. McKay's presidency. He's so sick and so ill at that time that he isn't even capable of signing that document. As you know, it's a curious document because it's only signed by the two members of the first presidency. Uh, Tanner and Hubie Brown are the signatories to that. And uh, so it, it, it's hardened into a doctrine, which means the only way that it can be changed or rescinded is through revelation. I mean, that, 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 that and, and the person that's really pushing hard for that at that point is, is Harold B. Lee. He, he's very much of a hardliner, and Joseph Fielding Smith, they're, they're the two senior apostles, uh, you know, uh, uh, at, at that time, and they both uh, eventually become church president. But getting back... I, to- I just want to have you clarify, can I, just, just a quick thought. Are you saying Harold B. Lee was in favor of the ban staying in place, or he's yeah, the one pushing much, against yeah, Joseph Fielding Smith? Very much in, uh, in favor of the ban uh, being, uh, remaining in place. I mean, there's, there's um, uh, Matt Harris, the, the fellow that, that I did 
the uh, Mormon Church and Blacks documentary history has, has unearthed uh, a number of documents that show that Harold B. Lee was very much of a hardliner uh, because uh, he was directly opposed on the policy of, of uh, on, on the on the policy doctrine, whatever you want to call it, of black priesthood denial. He was very much uh, at loggerheads with Hugh B. Brown because Hugh B. Brown was pushing very hard to have the ban lifted as early as the uh, as 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 the early 1960s, and he was pushing it very hard, and and he thought he might be able to uh, pull it off uh, in in the in the late 1960s, in, in 68, 69, and there were rumors that the church was about to uh, lift the ban at that time. And uh, but but very much opposed to that was uh, of course uh, uh, the hardliners within the twelve, uh, namely uh, Ezra Tapp Benson, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, and uh, Harold B. Lee, and they were all you know more senior apostles. Whereas Hubie Brown wasn't even brought into the uh, uh, the Council of Twelve until the nineteen nineteen fifties. And uh, into the first presidency in the early uh, '60s, and so uh, you know there, there was this division within the hierarchy of the church. And in fact, uh, if you, you you can see kind of uh, a kind of uh, division even going back to as early as 1940, as as, as uh, uh, for instance, uh, surprisingly enough. Uh, the uh, J. Reuben Clark, who is often looked at as kind of a hardliner, who was actually Harold B. Lee's mentor, as uh, as Mike Quinn has pointed out in his excellent biography of uh, of uh, of J. Reuben Clark, uh, as early as the as the early 40s, uh, J. Reuben Clark was suggesting that somehow the band wasn't quite right. We were going to have problems. You know, you can see you can see that you know as the church was expanding into non-white uh, areas of the world, that uh, you know this 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 band just was going to be increasingly problematic. And so, as early as uh, as as the 1940s, he was, uh, and this is in Quinn's biography, he was uh, pushing for uh, perhaps lifting the band. He was suggesting that. And uh, I, I, uh, by the mid 1950s, there is a lot of uh, a lot of discussion that's taken place, especially after David O. McKay becomes church president in 1951. He makes a statement that uh, this race problem is going to be an increasingly difficult one for the church to deal with. In fact, I discussed this in a. Um, uh, an article that was published in the John Whitmer Journal that was published a year ago. I talk about uh, 1954 in particular being a year which could have been a turning point. I mean, uh, there was serious discussion about the the, the viability of the Black Priesthood Ban, and this was taking place against the backdrop of uh, the emerging civil rights movement and also uh, the, uh, the, the, the fact that the church was becoming more and more uh, active in uh, South Africa 
and in Latin America, you know, and 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 so uh, there was a, you know, there was discussion about how viable is the ban. In fact, there was a study that was undertaken uh, under the direction of Adam S. Banyan uh, to go back and, and re-examine the origins and development of the ban, how, how this had come about and, and what, what could be done to resolve this conundrum of, uh, of surrounding uh, the ban. And that, all, that is all taking place in the mid uh, to late 1950s, so I say uh, J. Reuben Clark as early as the 1940s is, is questioning it. So there's 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 kind of this this uh, debate and discussion going back and forth behind the scenes, which I when I wrote Saint Slaves and Blacks, I was completely unaware of. If I was going to rewrite the book, particularly that section, I would include uh, a lot of discussion about what was going on behind these closed doors and. And and this debate and discussion kind of seeps into the open when Hubie Brown you know starts lobbying for the lifting of the ban as early as the uh, as at the beginning of the 1960s. And uh, so uh, uh, it there's there's a lot more going on. I, I mean behind the curtain, you know, because uh, the church. Officially, when when they come out with a statement or with a, a proclamation, they are anxious to present a united front that everybody's in agreement. But that's, that isn't always the case. So, so you get this space that gets created. Um, some of the hardliners they either pass away or they begin to be outnumbered by others in the top fifteen. And so you get to a place where all 15 are willing to concede um, that this is the right thing to do now. And, and I know that there were a couple of hardliners still around, and those folks tended to not be present for a couple of these meetings. And um, you finally get essentially a vote of uh, unanimity. And the 1978 announcement is made. Uh, as a revelation that the ban is to be lifted, that those of African descent can now receive the priesthood in terms of males, and both males and females can now go to the temple. And when that happens, you get Elder McConkie, who comes out and makes the statement at a BYU devotional address that, you know, forget everything I've ever said, forget everything that President Young has said. Um, and it's this recognition that new light has come and we've made this dramatic shift, but there seems to be no effort made. It it seems like there's dead silence from the church for decades to make the membership of the church aware to go that one more step and say like the things we taught weren't true and the theories were false. It was almost like we left it open for some to say, like, whatever whatever made those spirits less valiant, those spirits have all gotten mortal bodies now, and now the spirits coming in with dark skin, they're just under a different set of, of circumstances. There was no effort made, there was no public conversation occurring to kind of squash these old ideas. And so I joined the church, I think it was 1996, and in 1996, I was still, I was a 17-year-old kid, and I was still deeply immersed 
in these race theories as true, as doctrine. And they were conversations that occurred in my ward. They were conversations that occurred with the my in-laws as family. And it was like there was no recognition that these simply just weren't true. Can you maybe talk for a moment about any thoughts you have on that, these decades of silence and not, not speaking up and saying like, Hey, there was no revelation to initiate the ban. uh, At least not one that we know of. And in other words, all the things that we acknowledge in the gospel uh, topics essay why are those things unmentioned for decades after the 1978 revelation? Any thoughts you've got on that? Well, I, I, I guess it, uh, it, it, it's an issue of, uh, you know, the idea that uh, getting back to what uh, you were saying earlier about the church being led by prophets who received their inspiration uh, directly from God, I mean, there was a reluctance to go back and say that uh, directly what they said was wrong because, you you know, you appear to be saying, well, uh, are these false prophets? You know, I, I, I think there was that, that uh, inherent reluctance to, to countermand what had, been, what, what had been taught for generations and generations about, uh, you know, uh, black inferiority being scripturally based and 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 all of that. I, I I think that had a lot to do with it because uh, you know as as as, as late as uh, I, I think it was uh, nineteen uh, nineteen the late nineties there was a discussion that the church was going to actually. Uh, there was pressure. We talk about this in in our documentary history. There was pressure to on the church to refute these earlier racist teachings, and uh, and 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 I guess you know church leaders just weren't ready to the point of doing that in a direct uh, you know uh, bold way at that time, and uh, uh, it was uh, the church president at that type time. Uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, who uh, reaffirmed, well, the revelation speaks for itself. You know, he, 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 he you know, the, uh, the, the 1978 uh, statement speaks for itself and, and implying that ne- nothing further needs to be said. And that was kind of an attitude that was set in place from the moment that the revelation was, was issued. And it continued to be reinforced even as late as the, uh, end of the 20th century in 1998, 1999. And there was a whole, you know, a kind of this whole uh, controversy uh, where, uh, where uh, uh, and, and Armand Moss, who had just completed his All Abraham's Children, was sort of caught up a little bit in that maelstrom. They, they uh, uh, you know, there was consultation that was taking place about if the church did issue a statement, and there's some su- suggestion that the church that there was again division within the top leadership of of, of the church of how far should we go in uh, refuting these earlier racist teachings, uh, it, it took better than another decade for that to be uh, affirmed in the uh, in 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 the gospel topics. Uh, uh, statement uh, in uh, in 2013, I believe it's 2013, 
that they, they, they finally did that. But it, I, part of it is, is the LDS Church is essentially a conservative institution in many ways. I mean, the LDS Church leaders and, and uh, the church itself kind of uh, is always sort of lags behind in where the rest of society is and, and, and where they feel comfortable in, uh, in, in uh, you know, refuting or uh, countermanding what was previously accepted as, uh, as truth or as, uh, as even doctrine. And so uh, uh, it, uh, you know, it, it was a long, painful process. And I, my good friend, Darren Smith, who, uh, uh, whom I co-authored uh, the uh, or co-edited uh, the book the uh, blacks and black and Mormon with he I remember he was just frustrated very bothered that the church has got an issue an apology the church has got an issue an apology and in fact in the essay uh, that uh, I I wrote for uh, uh, for Sunstone on the 25th anniversary of the lifting of the ban, I, I, I was making the same argument because uh, that the church needed to, uh, uh, you know, refute these uh, previous racist practices. It just, I, I think it took a, a long time for uh, church leaders to feel comfortable in uh, doing that, just as it, it took a long time for them to admit that the practice uh, hadn't started with Joseph Smith, but started with Brigham Young. Uh, I mean, uh, that 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 uh, took a long time too. And so, you know, it, it the church tends to be very very conservative in in uh, adapting to changing conditions within the larger society. I mean, you can see that today with regard to the issues of homosexuality, same-sex relationships, and in uh, women in authority. How much uh, of a role should women be given in with regard to priesthood authority? I mean, those are two very, uh, you know, thorny issues. And whereas uh, other churches and the rest of society has is, is, is moved much further in, uh, you know, accepting uh, those as the norm, the LDS Church has really held back. And that was the same with, with, the, with the issue of civil rights. I mean, the church didn't issue its first the statement affirming uh, uh, its support for civil rights until the early 1960s, and that was... And when the civil rights movement was well, well underway, and, and that was done at the urging of people like Hugh B. Brown in the first presidency and, and uh, uh, Sterling McMurrin who was, uh, and uh, uh, the Udall brothers who were arguing uh, from, you know, outside of the uh, official leadership of the church. Right, right. So you're saying that you think obviously it'd be a good idea to to somehow issue some sort of apology. And well, I, I just want to... I'm, I'm not saying the church should issue an apology. That was what my good friend uh, Darren Smith, uh, a black Latter-day Saint, he, he feels the church should issue an apology for what they had done in the past. I, I, I you know... It's hard for the uh, it's hard for church leaders to apologize for uh, for something that was embraced as 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 doctrine. I I don't know 
if it's even realistic to hope that the church will issue an apology. I guess it, it, it seems like the best, I think, that uh, faithful, believing Mormons like yourself could probably hope for is, is a, you, a continuing a refu- refuting of the racist practices that took place in the past. I don't think they'll ever say, well, we really sincerely apologize for the mistakes made by these church leaders, <laughs> the previous church leaders. I don't think you'll ever see the LDS church come out with a bald statement like that, and realistically speaking. <laughs> if, if they, let's just say they did, would you applaud such a thing? Pardon? If they did apologize, let's just say they did, would you applaud such a thing? Yeah, I would. I mean, I, we all make mistakes, and humans to err is to human, you know, be human. And uh, I, I, I certainly would, would uh, applaud uh, such a move. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I was absolutely shocked and surprised when, uh, when, when the ban was lifted. I, I didn't see it coming, as I note in my uh, Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, uh, when I wrote, the, uh, wrote it as a dissertation at the, uh, the last chapter of my original doctoral dissertation, which came out in 1975, I stated, well, I don't see the church changing in the foreseeable future. Because part of it was I, I didn't see the seriousness of the debate and discussion that was taking place behind closed doors throughout the 19, um, 1950s. 1960s and even going back into the 1940s that there there was all this back and forth that was uh, was taking place and that it would yeah it would uh, reach uh, you know it 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 intensify intensify in momentum by the 1970s I I should mention I think one crucial uh, change uh, that that uh, one crucial thing that happened that made lifting the ban uh, you know was was the uh, sudden unexpected death of uh, Harold B. Lee after just 18 months as church leader. I, I should mention that uh, Signature Books just uh, asked me to do a short biography uh, 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 on Harold B. Lee, which was kind of a, an offer that came out of, uh, out of nowhere. And so I, I've been going back and looking at the the role and the place of Harold B. Lee, one of the more interesting and controversial of uh, LDS church leaders, because he purportedly stated that, uh, and 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 uh, according to documentation, which I don't have, but my good friend Matt Harris has, that he's that Harold B. Lee supposedly told family members and those close to him that the ban wouldn't change during his lifetime. And, you know, you have to recall when he became president, uh, you know, after the death of Joseph Fielding Smith in, in, in 1972, he was, you know, Harold B. Lee was only 73 years old. And that was really very, very young, one of the youngest church leaders to ever assume leadership. And so you assume the scenario, if he had lived, uh, you know, into his 90s, uh, what, would have, what would have happened with regard to the ban? And so... Getting back to what I was saying originally, I I was very surprised when the ban was lifted. But I think one of the critical things that happened was the was the unexpected emergence of Spencer W. Kimball as church president in uh, December of 1973. Without that, I don't know how long it would have taken the church to have uh, lifted the ban. I think that was a critical development. Yeah, absolutely. So 
uh, in recent years, we get the this gospel topic essay, uh, Race and the Priesthood, and we get that third to last paragraph, which is, I think, crucial. And it's it's kind of this very first moment in Mormonism's history where it disavows, at least in part, the teachings of past leaders, at least using that kind of strong language. Um, it, it seems even moving forward from that, and I know the church just announced they're going to do this this anniversary celebration of the 1978 revelation, which I, I think is brave of them because I think it's going to open up a lot of conversations that are, I think some of those at least are not going to reflect positively on how the church handled that issue. And so I, I applaud them for um, being vulnerable to that. But it seems like in the church, we're still kind of allowing the the older high priest to kind of exit this world holding on to those beliefs. And meanwhile, we're teaching the young people that something has dramatically changed. Uh, any thoughts on from you on how the church is handling this issue today? And, and any thoughts maybe on what you see as any shifts the church might make on this issue going forward? Oh, boy. That, that's a tough question. I, you know, I have to... Uh point out at the onset that I'm, even though I'm a member of record, I'm not an active practicing Latter-day Saint. Uh, I, 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 in fact, I haven't been an active practicing Latter-day Saint since I was a teenager. You probably might be, be surprised at that. And so uh, it's hard for me to assess what, uh, you know, the dynamics of what would be going on on a uh, grassroots level as far as uh, active believing Latter-day Saints, I, 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 you know, the church is obviously becoming more open, but even on the, uh, the whole gospel topics essays, you know, the, all of them that have been issued, all 13 that have been issued, the church really has been a little bit uh, reluctant on, uh, you know, exposing, uh, you know, members to, because they deal with all of these problematic topics, not just race and the priesthood, but women and priesthood authority, uh, the historicity of the of, of the Book of Mormon, the historicity of the Book of Abraham, uh, DNA in the Book of Mormon. I mean, they deal all of these deal with really hot button topics, and I I I I, I think the the church is kind of in a very difficult position as far as uh, how do we uh, how do we uh, um, make our members aware of these problematic as aspects. I, I think it's a question of like inoculation, inoculation against, uh, and that's why the, the, the gospel topics essays uh, were issued as to inoculate uh, church members uh, so they don't get this information from anti-Mormon uh, sources or sources that are hostile toward the church. I, I, I think the church is moving in the right direction in issuing these gospel topics essays. But on the other hand, at times they seem reluctant to really uh, make people aware of them. I, uh, I, I mentioned the gospel topics essays because Matt Harrison and I just finished a volume in which we, uh, we uh, recruited a number of scholars to respond to what was contained within and, and, and what was not included in each of the gospel topics uh, essays is going to be published by University of Utah Press in early uh, 2020. Uh, 
19. And so I'm, I'm a little bit cognizant of the difficulty that the church is experiencing right now because, uh, you know, there, there is this hemorrhaging of, of, of membership of people who, when they come across these issues, this says, oh, gosh, I mean, they, the church has been teaching false doctrine not only on the race issue but on all of these other controversial aspects of, of, of church doctrine and history. And I, I, I guess I, I feel that the, 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 the church leaders need to be more open and forthright and encouraging you know, this process of inoculation against this virus of what I guess they would call, uh, you know, disaffection. Uh, that they, they, I, I, I think, I think church leaders and church spokesmen need to be more proactive. Right. Yeah. No. I, I appreciate all of that. I'm, I agree with you 100. percent The gospel topic essays, um, I think, tell tell these issues in a way that leaves out a lot of the problematic data. And when and you can tell, like for instance, in the polygamy essay, which is again off topic here, but when you when you say several months shy of her fifteenth birthday, for instance, you can tell whoever inserted that rhetoric, that wording, they themselves were uncomfortable with putting the number fourteen down on a piece of paper. And as you point out, these essays have been very difficult to access from their start. It was almost like if somebody's looking for it. We'll let them find it, but we don't want everybody else knowing they're there. And I'm with you. I think we need to be a lot more transparent and honest and vulnerable and let the chips fall where they may. And I think to do anything less than that, at least borders on being deceptive. And and I don't I don't want my church to do that. I want my church to be good and healthy. And I think being vulnerable to some of the mistakes we make in our life and and here institutionally, um, I think is a good thing for us to do as we grow up and mature. Um, I just want to say thank you, Newell. Uh, Newell Bringhurst, author of Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, The Changing Place of Black People Within Mormonism. Uh, I know people can get the book at Coford Books. They can order it through Coford's website. Coford Books is a great, great book company, and I've always appreciated the relationship that I've had with them and getting authors like yourself on to have conversations. Um, I just wanted to at least throw a plug in, too. Could you tell us where else people can get your book at, Newell? Well, they can get it They can get it on Amazon.com. It's available both in, in uh, hard, you know, both as hard copy and electronically, you can, uh, you can, uh, and, and so if you go to Amazon.com as well as the Colford uh, website, also available from uh, Benchmark uh, Books in, in Salt Lake City. You know, they're the, they're the large bookstore. In fact, I'm going to be doing a, a, a book event with them this coming Tuesday when I'm in Utah. Yeah, beautiful. I'm good friends with Kurt and Chris and really appreciate all they do. Uh, within our community. Um, again, if you can purchase the book from Coford uh, or Benchmark Books, you're, you're going to support the author, uh, Newell Bringhurst, uh, as well as these uh, local book companies that do so much within uh, the Mormon circles. Um, but if not, Amazon is always there too, if, if you're just looking for the, the easiest way to kind of get the book as quick as possible. Um, I just want to say, Newell, thank you so much. Appreciate all you bring um, over the years on this topic, and uh, it just means a lot that that at least on the margins out there, we're having these conversations and trying to bring people 
up to date on how these things unfold and what really what really goes on behind the scenes with these issues and man is mormonism uh, really a, a just a 200 years the the history is about as rich as any other other facet of of history out there so thank you so much thank you for having me on Taking out my issues never healed